This is a game of two halves, exploring the business behind the football, with your hosts Lloyd Pinnell and Mark Anscombe. This week, we'll be discussing City Football Group and the vision of their CEO, Ferran Soriano. Episode 1, The Panther. It's a moment that redefined Premier League history. Quite possibly the most dramatic final day twist ever seen in the Premier League. You will all remember where you were when the goal went in. You all remember the commentary. It's finished at Sunderland. Manchester United have done all they can. That Rooney goal was enough for the three points. Manchester City are still alive here. Balotelli, Aguero! Of course, we're talking about Sergio Aguero scoring the last gasp winner for Man City against QPR in 2012. 2-1 down after 90 minutes, City came back to win in extra time, giving them their first league title since 1968. Dreams came true, grown men cried, school kids around the world relived the scenes over lunchtime kickabouts for years to come, ourselves included. Seven years later, and the club has reached new heights, amassing two more Premier League titles, an FA Cup, four League Cups and two Community Shields. In 2017-18, they broke the record for most points and most goals in a single Premier League season. Despite getting knocked out of the Champions League by Spurs, they're still on course for a historic triple at home. But what lies behind this incredible turnaround? How did City go from United's noisy, skint neighbours to challenging for Champions League titles? The answer, of course, is money. As we all know, the royal family of Abu Dhabi bought Man City in 2008 for a reported £210 million. They've since invested £1.5 billion in the club, spending over £1 billion on new players, and have expanded their stadium capacity to 55,000 seats. The full story, however, is much, much more complex than just money. Over the last few years, City has meticulously initiated a revolution in the football industry, devising a new globalised business model that is already outcompeting the old giants of the game. So while it may be on the field that the headlines are being made, the boardroom is the true engine room of the Manchester City machine. The story of City's transformation revolves around three key individuals. The first, Ferran Soriano, also known as the Panzer, the club CEO and brains behind the business. Number two, Sheikh Mansour, the Emirati prince and owner of the club. And finally, number three, Pep Guardiola, Barcelona legend and current club manager, who needs no further introduction. In this episode, we explore the story of the Panzer, City CEO, Ferran Soriano, the businessman whose grand vision is redefining the world footballing map. In the three decades prior to 2008, Man City were a middle of the road team, spending time in the second and first divisions before climbing to the Premier League for good in 2002-2003. City had a dedicated working-class fan base and a reputation for being a try-hard team of serial losers, often failing in fairly comical circumstances. Their final game of the, of the 07-08 season was a nine-goal thriller against Middlesbrough, in which Middlesbrough scored eight. City's star striker that year, Darius Vassell. Just across town, their rivals United were flying high in arguably their most dominant period ever under the great Sir Alex Ferguson. 
Fergie and his team of stars were particularly adept at humiliating their crosstown rivals. Ferguson would frequently refer to the city of Manchester Stadium as the Temple of Doom. When asked to list his main rivals in the league, he cited Liverpool, Arsenal and Leeds in order of importance. But City were, and still are, a fiercely proud club who wore their underdog status on their sleeve and looked back on their past successes with pride, if not a touch of longing. The club was founded in 1880 by the daughter of the local vicar in West Gorton, a tough part of town with high unemployment and gang violence. It was originally intended as a social project to stop men in the neighbourhood from drinking and brawling. For almost 130 years, it retained some of this spirit. Manchester City was a club on the corner, without any pretense or vanity. A football team by the people, for the people. City have enjoyed a few golden eras in their history, winning promotion to the First Division in 1899, followed by an FA Cup trophy in 1904. In the late 1960s and early 70s, under the legendary manager Joe Mercer, they won a First Division title, the FA Cup, the League Cup, and a Cup Winners' Cup. Even during these periods of success, City retained their friendly, community-based ethos, proud of their team of fighters and their textured history. In many ways, the antithesis of their flashy neighbours over at the Theatre of Dreams. In the years prior to Mansour's takeover, City were anything but rich. In fact, there were times they were so broke that the groundsmen couldn't even afford enough white paint to mark out the pitch. To most, the idea that City would become the world's richest club was absurd at every moment until the buyout. Even die-hard fans would not have dreamed of the riches to come and the complete evolution it would entail. Which makes what happened on September 1st, 2008 that much more remarkable. On the same day that Sheikh Manzor bought the club, City announced the signing of Brazil star Rubinho. Future legend Vincent Kompany had arrived at the club from Hamburg a week before, a sign of the influx to come. The mood in the sky blue half of Manchester was euphoric. TV cameras flocked to the city to capture the jubilant scenes. As one fan spoke earnestly to a journalist about his renewed hope, two others passed behind him, dancing like Egyptian hieroglyphs with tea towels wrapped around their heads. Sheikh Mansour soon became a cult icon for legions of fans, who took to singing Sheikh Mansour, my lord, at games to the tune of Kumbaya. Needless to say, there was no shortage of doubters. Pele famously told a press conference that Rubinho needed counselling after choosing to go to City. You can't just buy championships, they said. For the first three years, they would prove right. City knew all along that this was a long-term project, but short-term failings left the club blushing and many pundits revelling in schadenfreude. It was an experimental time. Forgettable players came in and out on a conveyor belt of ridiculous transfer fees. The likes of Adebayor, Joe and Colo Torre. City finished ninth in the first season under Sheikh Mansour, 10th the year after, before rising to 5th in their third season. In 2011, the tide began to turn. City signed some key players, with Yaya Torre, David Silva and Eden Dzeko coming in. But 2012 was the year that everything changed, heralded by the arrival of one man, Ferran Soriano, aka the Panzer. Soriano arrived at City after four years in footballing exile. He had previously spent five years as the vice chairman and interim CEO of Barcelona, before resigning in 2008. The son of a hairdresser from a working class district of Barcelona, Soriano had the thick skin and steely determination needed to break into Barcelona's elite 
and navigate the tricky political environment at the top of the club. More importantly, the Panzer had a clear vision for the future of football that he pursued with dogged determination. Soriano thinks differently to most in the world of football. Unlike the old guard, who make decisions based on gut feeling and experience, Soriano cares more about facts and figures. He has spoken of his horror when hearing stories about the signing of players for millions based only on the manager's instinct and YouTube highlight videos. He recalls being told, aged 36, by one of the more patronising directors on the board at Barcelona. Let me give you a word of advice, boy. Don't expect to come in here and introduce great management techniques or want us to use your business logic. All that matters here is if the ball goes into the net. It's all down to luck. Soriano didn't believe in luck. He preferred to let the statistics do the talking. Like baseball, he saw that football needed to be moneyballed. He even wrote about it in his book, La Pelota No Entra Por Azar. The ball doesn't go in by chance. In it, he outlines key insights on the football business that would define his vision for the future of top clubs. First, he observed that the world's top clubs were failing to adequately monetize their global fan bases. Teams with millions of followers around the world were somehow losing money every year. It made no sense to him. Take Man United, for example. In 2018, the club had an estimated global fan base of 660 million people, but a total revenue of only 590 million pounds. Their dedicated, often fanatical fan base were spending less than one pound per head on their beloved team. Second, Soriano found a variable that predicted professional football teams' results on the field with an almost perfect correlation, player salaries. In other words, he worked out that quite simply, the more you spend on players, the more games you win. A team may not be able to buy wins outright, but they can maximise their chances of doing so by paying more for talent than their rivals. In the English Premier League, player wages now amount to almost 60% of total club expenditures. Games are being won and lost based on payroll. The logic is simple. Make more money, pay for better players, win more games. Luck does not factor into the equation. His final key insight is that knowledge about player quality is the key to financial success in football today. With transfer fees sometimes in the hundreds of millions, having better information about players is more important than ever. The stakes have never been higher. A single transfer flop can set the club finances back by months or even years. Arguably the most crucial part of modern football is working out when to buy players and when to sell them, and crucially, at what price. Thanks to his business methods and sound financial management, Soriano's tenure at Barcelona was incredibly successful. As interim CEO, he tripled the club's total revenues and turned a 70 million euro annual loss into a 90 million euro annual profit. Barcelona FC famously claimed to be about more than just money. Above all else, they are proud of their heritage and their identity. Mezquil and club, as they say. Unlike most teams in the top European leagues, Barcelona is fully owned by its fans. It has approximately 150,000 voting members, or socios, who directly elect the president. Unfortunately for Soriano, the president he was faced with was Juan Laporta, a mercurial and ruthless Catalan independentist leader. Soriano was a businessman, Laporta a politician. And what's more, the pair had completely opposing visions for Barcelona and frequently clashed over this. Eventually, the time came when Soriano flew too close to the sun. 
he came to the board with an ambitious proposal to establish a series of franchise clubs in different countries. This was a step too far for a club so deeply rooted in the identity of a single city and region. Laporta refused. Soriano pushed back. And eventually, after a high-profile argument, Soriano was unceremoniously kicked out. His vision for the future of the club died with him. Banished from the Barcelona board, Soriano turned away from football. Instead, he managed an airline company for a few years, exiled into the footballing wilderness. Until one day, a phone call came in from Manchester City. They had paid very close attention to his work at Barcelona, and they wanted to talk. Sheikh Mansour and his advisor Khaldun al-Mubarak thought Soriano might be the man to build their dream club. Soriano met with Mansour's lawyer at a Mayfair hotel in late 2011. Initially, the panzer was reluctant, distrusting what he later called the stereotype of the rich owner. However, it soon became clear that this was actually his golden opportunity. He saw in Mansour and Mubarak the desire, and crucially, the financial firepower to bankroll his vision. He could finally implement the ideas he had at Barcelona, but instead in Manchester. Soriano laid his cards out on the table. He wanted to build the world's next best football club. He was here to surpass the likes of Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, Man United, and, more than anyone, Barcelona FC. Mansour liked what he heard. He too had his eyes on global domination and a footballing legacy that would last for generations. The pair soon set to work, registering a new corporation that would aim to revolutionise and ultimately dominate world football, the City Football Group. Only two days after taking charge as CEO, Soriano flew to New York to meet with the owners of the New York Yankees, Hank and Hal Steinbrenner. They agreed to a partnership and the launch of a franchise club to be called New York City FC. It took them all of 15 seconds to complete the deal. The team would play in the Yankee Stadium in exchange for a 20% equity stake for the Steinbrenners. The group pitched up the $100 million required to get a spot in the MLS, and by 2015, they were up and running bringing in a host of ageing legends to attract fans, including Perlo, Lampard, Drogba and David Villa. CFG were just warming up though. Two years later, they acquired two more clubs, Melbourne City FC, playing in Australia's A-League, and the Yokohama Marinos, based in Japan. Three years later, two more clubs were brought into the fold. In 2017, CFG bought Club Atletico Torque, based in Uruguay's capital, Montevideo. Next up was Girona FC, an up-and-coming challenger in Spain's La Liga. Interestingly, CFG share ownership of this club with Pere Guardiola, Pep Guardiola's younger brother. Finally, in February of 2019, CFG bought Sichuan Junyu FC, based in Chengdu, China. Which means that currently, CFG's empire totals eight teams across five continents. CFG's teams all share common attributes. They are all up and coming with rapidly increasing fan bases and viewership. Like angel investors, CFG are snatching up emerging football clubs that fit their mould, and they're by no means finished yet. The group has also been linked with Saint-Étienne, playing in France's top league, as well as Estoril and Boa Vista, both rising forces in the Portuguese Primeira League.
CFG are not just acquiring clubs, though. They are also opening academies around the world to ensure they have a consistent supply of young talent. True to his principles, Soriano has decided to strategically locate the academies based on statistics. CFG has founded academies in cities that produce the most football players per capita and cities with the fastest growing football populations. Top of the list was Accra in Ghana, Caracas in Venezuela, as well as key locations in Vietnam and Malaysia. The plan is to roll out replicas of Barcelona's famed La Masia Academy across the world, a footballing school that has produced the likes of Messi, Xavi and Iniesta. To this end, CFG even hired Barcelona's chief talent scout. Underpinning this growing network of clubs and academies is a business structure with processes and systems more closely resembling a multinational corporation than a football club. For example, CFG maintain a centralised database of over 300,000 players, which they use to track player development, identify potential new recruits, and gather insights on the global player market. Their extensive scouting network feeds this constantly evolving dataset, allowing CFG to stay one step ahead of the game. Today, CFG resembles a borderless worldwide footballing ecosystem. The group aims to have a seamless free movement of players, coaches and staff between all the teams and academies in the organisation. Soriano sees this ecosystem as pyramid-like in structure. At the base are the academies that seek out, trial and train talent from all four corners of the world. The layers above represent different league tiers. The lower league clubs are fed directly by the academies where younger players are sent to get their first taste of competitive football. Players that perform well move up the pyramid to more competitive leagues and bigger clubs, with the flagship club Manchester City at the zenith. The entire process is designed with one prize in mind, the Champions League. If you accept Soriano's philosophy, the advantages of the system are obvious. Firstly, it allows Soriano to control the market for players. A star player may start his life in academy in Accra, moving to a smaller franchise club in a minor league to hone his talent. After impressing at this level, they get the call-up to grace the pitch at the Etihad, then finally see off their twilight years in New York. Soriano has dismantled all barriers to movement within the group, allowing players to move freely inside the structure. Crucially, if the time comes to sell a player, CFG have the insider information. They know more than anyone about the player's strengths, weaknesses and ultimately value. This means that they are best placed to make big money off transfers. Take the case of Aaron Moy, for example, who came into the City Football Group as a completely unknown player at Melbourne FC. City immediately saw his potential there, helped him develop to reach it, then moved him on to Manchester in 2016. Leveraging their knowledge of his quality, they immediately loaned him on to Huddersfield Town for a year, where he helped them win promotion to the Premier League. City then used their position of strength to sell him back to Huddersfield for £10 million, which incidentally was some 40% more than it cost to buy the entirety of Melbourne FC. This ecosystem also has more immediate short-term benefits for the teams in the group. For example, when New York City FC signed Frank Lampard in 2014, he was immediately loaned back to Man City for the season to beef up their midfield. The system also solves a massive conundrum that has plagued some of the world's top clubs, how to hold on to prized academy players. Followers of the Premier League will know the story all too well. Southampton fans, you may want to look away now. A promising young player rises up through the academy ranks and breaks into the first team squad. 
The first team is packed, full of seasoned veterans, and the young player struggles to cement his place, playing a few seasons from the bench. Unable to properly break into the starting lineup, they get sent out on loan where they fail to reach their potential or become disillusioned entirely and leave for another club. Chelsea will know this better than anyone, having lost Salah, Lukaku and De Bruyne at young ages for lack of space in their first team. How much better would they be faring now if they had had a system that allowed them to keep hold of these young players? Perhaps the biggest single advantage of CFG's global super brand is the prospect of a monetized international fan base. The idea of building this global group of franchises is that fans of one club in one country would also become fans of other CFG clubs in other countries. A diehard supporter of Melbourne FC, for example, may also follow Man City in the Prem and keep an eye on how New York City FC are getting on in the MLS. This might sound like a ridiculous concept at first, especially considering the deep-rooted tribalism of many supporters, but times are changing. Ask a veteran Man City fan in a pub in Manchester if he'd also support the mighty Sichuan Junyu in China's League 2, and he'd probably ask you if that's the name of his local takeaway before promptly telling you to piss off. However, ask a young kid in Chengdu if he would support both Man City and his local Sichuan team, and the answer is obvious. In fact, they would probably already have a shirt with Aguero on the back. The key point here is that there are far more football fans in Chengdu than there are in the sky blue half of Manchester. This new generation of football fans around the world don't necessarily base their support on where they're from or a geographical attachment to a certain team. It's about the players, the brand and the story. Barcelona has fans all over the world because of Messi, some of whom will not be able to point to Catalonia on a map. This new reality known as globalization, is inevitable and is already happening right now. Kids from Jakarta to Mexico City already follow at least one major team in a top foreign league, if not several. CFG are trying to monetize this fandom and capture a global segment of the market. If fans of their franchise clubs in Yokohama, Melbourne, Chengdu, New York, Montevideo are then also buying Man City shirts, watching games and even taking a pilgrimage to the Etihad every year, the potential revenues are staggering. In fact, the model makes so much sense that it is already being replicated. Just look at the Red Bull Group, who now own Red Bull Leipzig, Red Bull Salzburg, Red Bull Brazil, and the New York Red Bulls. This Disneyfication of football is here and in some ways is unstoppable. It is surely only a matter of time before other major teams replicate this structure and also become global entertainment corporations. What will the Panzer's impact be on global football? And how will history judge his grand vision? Only time and trophies will tell. Right, so we're going to go to uh, my mate Mark now. Mark's, uh, you know, has been called a football specialist. He's, he's watched at least four or five football games in his life. Uh, so Largely it's just town games, I have to admit. Which, have, which are a legendary team, so there's no shame in that at all. <laughs> so Mark, what do you think? Are other teams going to follow CFG's lead and also set up this franchise system across the world? Or do you think they're going to stick to their guns? Sure answer no. 
think they'll stick to their guns for now and see how City do. To be honest, I think City are the guinea pigs here. They are the first ones to say, right, we're not just going to you know, put a bit of money into the team, buy a few good players and see what happens. We are going to revolutionise football from, you know, from the ground up, from the academies, from the grassroots. And I, th- I think they're the guinea pigs. If they succeed, if they win you know, two or three Champions Leagues in the next 10 years... I think other teams will say this This is inevitable. We have to do this. There's no choice anymore. But is, will it not be too late at that point? Mm. You know, if they set this up before other teams, then in effect they have a first mover advantage. You're right. They, have- they all have the structure in place for anyone else. So, so don't you think a team like Man United will be panicking, saying we need to, we need to copy this before they get too far I ahead? Mean, I mean, de- first of all, there's no reason to panic, right? Because City are yet to win the Champions League. You know, it, it has been... Um, you know, almost a decade since City began this experiment, effectively. And yes, they have a number of domestic trophies to show for. Obviously, they've you know won the Premier League. Um, well, arguably, the Premier League is more important than the Champions. Yeah, I, I think if in two decades' time we look back and say, Jesus, City have just absolutely wiped the floor with the big teams um, and leaving everyone behind. You're right, teams will be kicking themselves for not following. I, I'm suspicious that's not going to be the case. Um, if you look at the current Champions League, uh, the current Champions League, you've got Spurs and Ajax doing fantastically well with fairly small budgets in inverted commas compared to the big the big boys. It just depends if City succeed and win win the Champions League trophy that they, they crave. I don't think that Man United are going to start panicking just because City have had a, won a few FA Cups and a few league league trophies. Well, Man City might not have won the Champions League yet, but you know they've been faced with pretty bad luck. They went out on VAR last year. Mm. No, sorry, they went out on VAR this year and they went out because of a lack of VAR last year. Mm. But if it wasn't for that, arguably, they were the favourites. I, I don't think... I thought Serrano didn't believe in luck. I thought that was his big, his big spiel. was an interesting as luck. It's all about stats. And the stats haven't followed through for City. On aggregate, Mark. <laughs> on aggregate. <laughs> on aggregate. It doesn't mean that in individual situations, you can't have luck no. deciding it either way. I, I, and do I like I don't I'm not saying that I don't ever see other teams following suit I just think in the next 10 years most teams like like the Man United the Barcelona the Romas are going to sit back and just watch City and say you know okay let's see how the experiment goes let's see them invest hundreds of millions of pounds probably into the billions by the time we get next decade but teams like Man United are spending that kind of money anyway on terrible transfers Mm. they're going to come to a point where they think we need a better system. Mm. We can't just go out and buy Alexis Sanchez and have him be rubbish and go out and buy Fred and have him be rubbish. At the end of the day, you're going to look at the team and think, we need a system that's actually going to produce I, talent I, and we need to know, because you know, if they had the city, the city structure in place, they probably wouldn't have bought Sanchez or Fred because they would have done I the think, numbers. I think them. you're doing a disservice to what these clubs currently have, so it's not, it's not like there's a <coughs> cost between Man City's massive... You know, super group versus a, a bumbling bunch of villagers over at United. You know, they have extensive scout networks. They do their research on players. You know, they already are, in a sense, global organisations, just with slightly behind on the structure, perhaps, that City have put in place. So I, I don't think they feel the need to say, right, oh, Christ, we're doing everything entirely badly. Let's restructure and, and completely revolutionise from within. Yet, as I said, yet, because end of day let's, go, let's look in 20 years time what if City win three Champions League in the trot other teams will be thinking right this is what we need to do right now um, and we need, to, we need to follow suit I think the thing with City is less about if they're going to succeed more about when they should succeed 
in that whether winning a Champions League in this style is actually, you know, worth it? Is it just completely destroying what football is about? Um, well, we can come on to the morality of the lay, but let's let's think a little about about the finances. Okay. First, um, one point which I think we should take up on is is this monetization thing. Sure. Uh, the figures we quoted in that script were for twenty eighteen. Mm. So the fact is, United for all that they're putting into the club are still making less than one pound per yeah. fan. It's, yeah. pe- it's peanuts. Cacahuete. <laughs> Pistachios. It is, it is cashews, for sure. And Man, Man City uh, yeah. has quadrupled its global fan base since mm. 2010. So in, in less than 10 years, it's gone to 400 million so global fans. from 100 million yeah. global fans. Yeah. Which so is, catch, catching up with United, United's 660 million. And, that, and that's the point to make, I think, is... That's a massive catch-up. It is a massive catch-up. And they are also making a lot more per fan than Man United are. And ultimately, if you follow Soriano's logic, Mm. money allows you to pay salaries for better players, get the big transfers and win win on aggregate, win the games. And attract more fans in in, in doing so. Um, Very valid point. And what I would say is teams like Man United will be looking at the revenues now and thinking this is not good enough. Um, and we'll be seeing what City are doing and seeing the potential, um, and th- that is that is part of this. It, part of this is that City aren't doing it in secret. This is a very open and very explicit strategy of theirs. They're very open with the data they present, and they're saying, "Look at what we're doing." And eventually, Man United and the other teams may perk up their ears and think, "Shit, we can make five times as much money per fan as we currently do." Um, that that could completely happen. So there are a couple of teams who have who have replicated this system. Mm-hmm. We've spoken already about Red Bull um, and their different groups. Still nowhere near the size of the City Football Group, but they're working towards it. And RB Leipzig have become one of the forces in the Bundesliga. And the other one that's that's kind of following a similar model is the the Pozzo family group. So the Pozzos are an Italian wealthy family that sold a lots of pots and pans. Is <laughs> that how they made all their money? That's it. The Pozzo group. <laughs> That's shocking chat, right? <laughs> they actually sold a tools manufacturing corporation to uh, a German company called Bosch. <laughs> I'm not even going to bite on that one. <clears throat> well, so the Pozzo family, they started with Udinese mm-hmm. in Italy, bought Watford and bought Granada. Ah, yeah. So they got okay. three clubs and they're trying right. to operate a similar kind of fluid structure so of movement between teams. They're very fluid with their players. I think the big thing there is that they they see it as beneficial from the footballing point of view that they can move players around, see it as, as, we, as, as you talked about, the, the frictionless movement of players across boundaries. I don't think they're trying to nail the, the big corporation brand in the same way that New York, uh, City are, in the same way that Red Bull are. Mm. It's about the players, not the money. Yeah, they're not trying to build a global business. They're just trying to swap players and managers. Well, take if you take Watford, mm. um, which I would cha- change Watford and change the goal and say right, they're not aiming to be the world's biggest top football club like Man City are. Well, why not? Why? why okay, why not though? Because they're starting from a different place. Yeah, fine. they're starting from a different financial. Uh, arguably base. not. Arguably the same size club as, as City were when this will be. The Potsos don't have the money that Abu Dhabi does. There's not as much money in drills as there are in is in oil. Is that what you're trying to say? Different type of drilling. Different type of. Dr- that's very clear actually. That's <laughs> drills. We want to do drills. Back to football. I will drill the point until it's made. Yeah. 
Okay, starting from a different place, but Watford have been incredibly successful if you look at them as like a club that historically is not very successful, but but were aiming to challenge for the top spots, yeah. want to be in the top 10, yeah. and if possible, want to knock at the door of the top six. Mm. They have completely achieved that. Yeah. And, and maybe that's largely due to the structure they have with this ownership group with um, Granada and, and Udinese and the money yeah. they're putting in. They've been very smart about their players. Mm. They have a great squad. Compare that to like an Everton who are splashing out all over the place with big names who have failed to deliver. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of... Uh, Mangala! Mangala. Did they buy Elikam Mangala? Eliquiam. They bought Mangala. Rubbish. And again, City, mm. that's a great example of City milking the transfer market. Because Mangala was shit, they knew he was shit. They got 40 mil from yeah. him. Thanks for listening. This has been A Game of Two Halves with Lloyd Pinnell and Mark Anscombe. We'll be back next week with another episode on the City Football Group. Looking at the story of Sheikh Mansour.